BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, this is Steve. So, as you know, normally we preview each week's show on Tuesday, so all of you get a chance to check out the film before we release the podcast on Friday. But this time we're doing it a little different because next week's movie is actually playing in theaters this weekend, and we wanted to give all of you a heads up before it's too late. The film is the original Planet of the Apes, starring Charlton Heston, Rodney McDowell, Kim Hunter, and Morris Evans. I gotta tell you, this is one of my all-time favorites. It's directed by Frank Schaffner, who went on to direct Patton, and is written by the great Rod Serling and Michael Wilson, who also wrote Bridge on the River Kwai and Lawrence of Arabia while on the Hollywood Blacklist. It also features an absolutely groundbreaking score by Jerry Goldsmith. The screenings are being presented by Turner Classic Movies on Sunday, July 24th at theaters all across the country. This is one I've never seen on the big screen, and I just can't wait to check it out. So, we've got High Noon this Friday and Planet of the Apes next week. See you then. Hello, and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a classic film and explore its ideas, the filmmaking, its history, and the influence it has on us today. Uh, my name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and teacher in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a voiceover artist, actor, and host here in Los Angeles. And uh, this week we're doing a movie that I have... It's a great movie, but I, have, I almost have a love for this movie that might be beyond what its level... I, it's, beyond the Planet of the Apes? Is that it might talking? be beyond the Planet <laughs> of the Apes. So, uh, spoiler alert, we are uh, doing the original Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston, 1968. And this yeah. is... You know, there are those movies where every time it's on TV, you have to tune in. Yeah. This is definitely one of them for me. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I just love it. Yeah. T- t- well, this is, so usually you ask me, so let me turn it around on you. Like, when did you, for, since you seem to have a little more love for this than I do, tell me uh, uh, when you first saw it and why, why you love it so much. Like, I think at least I, a synopsis I, of why you I, love it so I, much. I think I was pretty young. Okay. I mean, I think... So this, I, I, ha- I have no memory of really seeing it the first time, okay. except that I feel like I was at home, alone, switching channels, and suddenly there was this guy with it. I don't think I had seen the beginning of this movie okay. the first four or five times I saw it. Oh, wow. Because I remember as older, when I was like, did rent it on VHS and saw the opening, and they spent a long time before you get to some apes. Oh, yeah. It's a really long time. It's and, 45 minutes before you see Roddy McDowell. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really long time. And I think, you know, when I was a kid, obviously, we've already talked about that. I grew up reading comic mm-hmm. books and I started reading science fiction, you know, probably fifth or sixth grade. 
I started to discover like Asimov and Piers Anthony and all those guys. Mm-hmm. And, and I was a huge, huge Star Trek fan. Right. Like, and so after school, every day seeing Star Trek or watching things like Ultraman. And so finding the Planet of the Apes was just, it fit right into that kind of stuff yeah. for me. Yeah. How about you? Uh, I think I saw it as a kind of a film completist. You know what I'm saying? Like where they, where like you, you, you look at that list and like, okay, there's a hundred films that I need to see before I die. This is on that list. And uh, for me, this is how it went about. Because when I was at Florida, when I was at... Uh, oh, so uh, you saw this a lot later. Oh, yeah. Older. I was way older in life. Yeah, yeah. Because wow. I, I, I had resisted the whole idea of it, you know. And I'd heard the, the line, you know, get your paws off me, you damn dirty ape. Like, I'd heard it parodied and joked about. But oh. I, I went through this period back when I was getting back into film, but got back into acting. When I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, I would go to University of Virginia, and you could rent laser discs, And you could right. watch laser discs in a little cubicle with headphones on. That's and I had a friend of mine who uh, was a, who had graduated from a film school in Chicago, and he compiled a list of films that I should watch as I was getting back into getting into films because I'd gone in the military and had done my own thing. So getting back into it, so one of these uh, one of the things on the list was Planet of the Apes, and I remember watching it, and it was such an enjoyable experience to see it as an uh, at that time in my life and really understand why it has such a cult status in terms of because i still think it's kind it is a popular film but it's one of those films that's popular but also cultish which is amazing about that film you know i agree that's so interesting because to me it's all about me as a little kid Ah. you know what i mean it really is a movie and i remember when and spoiler alert they're on earth I remember yeah, if you have not seen yeah, the film. Yeah, if you have not seen the film, we highly recommend you take a look at it. Yes. We're going to spoil every single thing about the exactly. movie. Um, when it gets to the end, yeah. I remember being shocked. Mm-hmm. Remember being not just shocked, but shook. Right. You know, and upset. Because, you know, maybe I, maybe I was nine or 10, yeah. I think, when I saw it. And that was like an, an intense thing that made me have to think about things in right. a different way. Well, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, CBS used to do their afternoon movie of the right. week or that, whatever. That's more how I think I saw it. Right. Something it, like that. It was, but it, was, it used that sequence where you see the Statue of Liberty's head and you see um, Charlton Heston with Nova on the horse right. through the uh, crown, right. the shots You're of the right. crown. Right. I remember one, this. Right. It, it was, was one, one of those, the clips. Exactly. And so I'd never understood what that was. And then I saw the movie when I saw the movie and I was like, oh my God. So the twist for me still worked because I'd never seen the movie or had it spoiled for me. But the twist was connecting a thing that you had seen a million yes, times exactly. and not understanding exactly. it. Exactly. By the way, it, it never occurred to me till because I, I did see that. Yeah. I remember it now that you bring it up. Oh, yeah. That, oh, so CBS was routinely spoiling the end oh, of one yes. of the great movie twists of all time. <laughs> so of like here's a here's a clip. It's a sled, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, okay, so for those of you who don't know a little bit of history about about the film, so it is 1968. It stars Charlton Heston. It has a really interesting story about how this movie came about. Mm-hmm. It's based on a book by Pierre Boulle who's a French writer, yeah. his biggest other credit is Bridge on the River Kwai. Oh, that's great. Which is, you know, a fantastic, fantastic... I've never read the book. I'm sure we'll get to this film, to Kwai. Oh, Bridge, we're going to yeah. get to Kwai. Yeah. And, uh, and interestingly enough, um, he won the Oscar for the screenplay for Bridge on the River Kwai, okay. even though he speaks no English at all. Wow, he's French? He's French. Okay. He's French. And the reason that he wins the Oscar is because the people who wrote Bridge on the River Kwai, uh, particularly Michael Wilson was blacklisted. Oh, wow. And so he, he couldn't accept the Oscar, and so the Oscar went to Pierre Boulle. 
So, so his only other, and he wrote a bunch of other books, and his only other book right. is this book, Planet of the Apes. And um, so interest comes into the idea of making this book, and let me just get his name. Oh, Arthur Jacobs yeah. is the producer of Planet of the Apes. He was a big pub- publicist. Mm-hmm. He was Marilyn Monroe's publicist. Oh. And, uh, was, and just said, I want to start being a producer. He finds this book. He says, let's go make it. They hire, the first writer they hire is Rod Serling. Huh. To write the screenplay. Yeah. Now, Rod Serling is the creator of The Twilight Zone, one of the great TV writers of all time. He also wrote a movie that I love that not too many people know, which is Seven Days in May, mm. um, uh, John Frankenheimer movie. Yes. Um, Rod Serling is a fantastic writer. And a lot of the elements in Planet of the Apes, in particular, the twist at the end that we were just talking about, yeah. that's Rod Serling. Wow. That's not in the book, which makes sense. It's yeah. a perfect Twilight Zone-y mm-hmm. sort, of, true. sort of moment. It's true. It's um, very true. And... The book, in the book, uh, the world of the apes is a modern world. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's more technologically advanced than our world. And when they first start working on it, and that's the screenplay Serling's working on, they do a screen test. Because one of the big things is really a makeup test. Because one of the big things they didn't know is, is this ape makeup going to work? We're going to have to have 200 people, all sorts of actors. And do you know who they originally had to play uh, yes. Dr. Zayas? Edward G. Robinson. Edward G. Robinson right. comes in with Charlton Heston. And so there is a clip, and you can see this. Really? Oh, yeah. Of, oh, I got to see this. Edward G. Robinson in, it's not as good, but in the, in the monkey makeup, yeah. talking to Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston's like in a like kind of safari-looking suit, and there's helicopters <laughs> and things because it's still modern. I love this. And it's, we're monkeys, see? And it's it's absolutely that's right, (laughs) and it's absolutely terrible. Yeah. But for whatever reason, uh, the studio went. Looks good. Let's do it. Yeah. At which point, Edward G. Robinson essentially says, "Fuck this! (laughs) I cannot do a movie in this makeup." So he ends up not being in it. And then they look at the budget and they go, "Well, to build this technological world for the apes, it's going to cost us a fortune." And so the idea to make them sort of less technologically advanced really is a budgetary Mm -hmm. decision. So they decide to do it for budget. And it's at that point they get rid of uh, Serling. Right. And and they bring in who do they bring in? But Michael Wilson, the guy who wrote Bridge on the River Kwai. Wow. By the way, also, which I should have said before, the other movie that Michael Wilson co-wrote, did yeah. not get credit for, is Lawrence of Arabia. Wow. Yeah. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay. So this is a guy, and if you look at his credits, it's a, he even, by the, his first uncredited writing work, and this yeah. is not Blacklist, this is pre-Blacklist, this is just he might have helped out a little bit, is It's a Wonderful Life, Frank Capra. Huh. So this is a guy, he wrote A Place in the Sun, he wrote, I mean, this is a wow. great, great Hollywood screenwriter, yeah. and they bring him in to Planet of the Apes. And this is what I didn't know, because I always knew Rod Serling, mm-hmm. and I love Rod Serling, so I'm like, oh, obviously he wrote all this great stuff. Right. All the political stuff, the ideas of dealing with race and religion and government and trials, that's Michael Wilson. Wow. That's what he brings to the movie. And so you have this, you know, and this is typical of movies, is that movies are not made by one person mm-hmm. frequently. You have all these people that come in to make this movie what it is. I think what's great about what you're talking about, the racial, this is why the movie still appeals to me and why I'm rewatching it for this podcast, because I hadn't seen it for a few months or at least a year, um, because I remember seeing it on TCM again, sure. so randomly. Um, but to explore, that's what keeps me coming back is the racial politics, the the uh, social politics, and then also what's going on uh, with Charlton Heston as a character. Like at the beginning of the film, he's kind of a dick. He's not. You know what? He is not kind of a dick. He, he's, he's a dick. He is a dick. He's a ball-busting dick. I've told you where you are and when you are. All right, all right. You're 300 light years from your precious planet. 
Your loved ones are dead and forgotten for 20 centuries. 20 centuries! Even if you could get back, they'd think you were something that fell out of a tree. He's like leaving Earth because he's judging Earth as being too free love. Too, it's kind of subversive conservative film in how Heston leaves Earth because he, he thinks it's too much free love. And he's, he's looking to find a connection with a woman. He wants to go and find a connection with a woman. I guess he had angled to think he'd have a connection with the woman on the spaceship who ends up dying and becoming, you know, like a, a mummy by the time they get to uh, wherever they are when they crash land. You know, that kind of <laughs> His line, I just want to interrupt because yeah. it's such a great line, which is, he says, I just can't help thinking that somewhere out there, there has to be something better than man. You thought life on Earth was meaningless. You despised people. So what'd you do? You ran out. No, no, it's not like that, Landon. I'm a seeker, too. But my dreams aren't like yours. I can't help thinking somewhere in the universe there has to be something better than man. Has to be. Yeah. Now that is, uh, and that's right at the beginning of the movie. Right. And that is a profoundly cynical line. Well, and it's perfect because if you're a student of history, 68 is knee deep in the Vietnam War, knee deep in Black Panther, Martin Luther King, Robert F. K. Jr., uh, Robert, RFK getting killed. Like everything is going on. And what he's talking about is the reaction to the end of flower power. It's the end of flower What's power. What's funny is it probably it's isn't because, because they're making it in 67. So right. RFK and Martin Luther King, they're still alive. Right, but the, but, the, but, but the point you make is absolutely correct. Yeah, the ideals of the flower movement are starting to show cracks. Because I don't know when Manson is. I think Manson, Manson's 65 or something like that? No, he's like 69, 70. It's 69. So, so it's the I beginning. Think, it's, it's, almost like pre, it's almost like showing you what's going, what they, what they think the end of this flower movement is going to bring about. And look what it does. Well, I see. And it's funny. I, would, I might put it slightly differently. Sure. Just because I'm just thinking about it now. Mm-hmm. But that... Because this is the end. We, we've had the World War II generation, the, the, the greatest generation, the, or the so-called greatest generation. Right. The builders, the people who believe they accomplish anything. And right when you get to the late 60s, yeah. you get to that idea crumbling. Because it is the rise. It's, it's where we're seeing all the flaws right. and the cracks. That's and that. at the same time, by the way, which is important in terms of this movie, this is when, exactly when the studio system is crumbling. Yeah. So the studio system's falling apart right now and doesn't know where to, you know, the studio system that uh, controlled every movie that came out, they're not, it's not working that well yeah. anymore. And this is right before we're going to get the next year is Bonnie oh, yeah. and Clyde and The Graduate and In the Heat of the Night right. and the beginning of the 70s, this new wave of filmmakers that's right. going to come along. And this is, so this is right at that moment between them and having this character that has rejected old earth. Yeah. It's a it's a really interesting thing and making comments about old Earth and this is so ironic because near the because at the end of the film Charlton Heston almost becomes his character almost becomes a hippie again like never trust anyone over thirty don't trust authority and this is so ironic to hear him say these words at the end of the movie when he's talking to the kid the young ape the nephew of uh, of uh, Zira is yeah. that her name the nephew is telling him yeah don't trust and you'll have your time and all this. and but it's so funny to hear him talk like a hippie almost like Bobby Darren singing if I were a carpenter it's just so out of place to hear Heston saying this stuff who had been such a Hollywood star and became and of course, as we know, became a very staunch conservative. So it's interesting to see him yeah. play this kind of stuff and say this stuff when you know that's not in his natural. Well, I don't, I see, this it makes me, it me. makes me wonder about Heston, right? Because because uh, there's touch of evil in which he yeah. plays a, a Mexican guy, yeah. and it's clearly an anti-establishment it film is. to some it degree. Right. And then he does things like Soylent Green, yeah. and he does Omega Man, and he does. 
Right. He, there's something in him that's interested in this. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, and I don't know how the sequence works out, is that when he, si- when he signs on to the movie, and when they do that first screen test, yeah. it's before it had gotten really political. Right. So I don't know how he felt. Um, the other thing, just getting back to him being yeah. a dick, is, is it's always interesting how you like, okay, we're going to have a character who's going to enter this world. Do we want a nice guy? Or do, and, and they yeah. really choose to make him a very difficult person. Yes. I do like him. Yeah, I don't know if I would course. like him personally. Right. But I do like him. As a protagonist, he's, he's interesting to follow he's, on his yeah. journey. He's a very antagonistic protagonist. Yes. Um, and he is so cruel to the two guys, mm-hmm. the two other astronauts. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the moment where the, one of the astronauts plants the little tiny flag after yeah. they crash land. And Heston just laughs at he's him. He's merciless. Yeah. <laughs> and and says and he's it's almost like he's a rookie on a on a sports team. He's yeah. just totally just laying into him about everything. And you're right, the laugh. <laughs> it is so destructive of your soul. Like oh, you're yeah. you're so nothing to him, you know. But so I think that's why the film is so good because he does get his comeuppance in a lot of ways. Oh yeah, and be, even in the end moment. And this was so great about the film, Stephen. I hope I'm not jumping too far around, but like the end of the film, I absolutely love. It just ends. And those films back then, they don't make them like that anymore. You don't no. get to end the film on a downbeat anymore. With that leaves the audience going, "Shit, what did we just watch?" Even Schindler's List ended with a somewhat of a happy moment because of the rocks coming on top of the cemetery. But in but in the, uh, the headstone, but like in reality. This film ends completely like you're totally fucked. Here you are on Earth. They really killed it. They destroyed Earth, and now the apes are taking over. What are you going to do with this woman? You just left the ape society. Where the hell are you going to go? Well, and not know? not only is he totally fucked, we are totally fucked yes. because that is our future. Yes, that's what the movie is saying. It's like this is where you're going. There's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, deal with it. Like the and this is why. For me, this is what great science fiction is. Yeah. Is that great science fiction is a movie or stories which allow you to examine ourselves by taking us into extraordinary circumstances. And this is probably what keeps me coming back to the movie over and over again is that this is such an example of it. Because Mm -hmm. all this is is an examination of humans. Yeah. That's all it is. Absolutely. That's all we're doing. And they work so hard and do such a great job mm-hmm. of making those apes recognizably doing human stuff. Like yeah. taking pictures of themselves and the way they kiss. Yes. And the relationship between Cornelius and Zero, which is lovely yeah. and sweet. And the relationship to politics and prejudice. Mm-hmm. It's all complex and layered human behavior, which because... And this is like, if you, if you go and make want to make, and this is true today as it is any time, let's make a movie about a controversial, difficult issue today. Yeah. It's very hard to get made, and nobody wants to go see it. Right. But if you go, let's make a movie about a dude showing up in a land that's run by monkeys, people are like, okay, <laughs> sounds good. One of the cheats of the movie, and that's, that's a great point, Stephen, one of the cheats of the movie is these monkeys apparently only have human strength. Because in real oh, yeah. life... Monkeys have ten times the strength of men, or five times the strength of men. They would have demolished Chelsea has to move one punch. It well, just would have been not even a contest, you know. And so it's fascinating. It's I think it's a great cheat of the movie that you because because it lets you see them as humans in the way they behave and the way they move and their strength. It so mirrors humans that you accept the points that it's making about humanity and the comments they have to make about the comments they make about man are the same comments man makes about animals. You know, they're stupid. They can't be domesticated. They can't be talked. Like these kinds of things are, they put them in a zoo, right? There's like uh, that whole museum where they're, oh, it's the all, mannequins. Yeah, and... it's so 
fuck. It's just there's so much there that you if you're if you're really uh, paying attention to what they're saying, you really can savor and enjoy in, in the craftiness and the cleverness of the script and of the portrayal. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And going back, I just want to back to the comment yeah. about monkeys being strong. Yeah. Honestly, they don't look like monkeys. Well, they look like aren't they gorillas or they apes? Do they look They're like apes? gorillas? Well, they look like some kind of simian thing that I they look gorilla would destroy me. They look gorilla-ish. Sure. I mean, gorillas have they have arms that are a foot longer than that. They have right. You know, it's like they have they have hands dragging on the ground. They have they right. don't look like that. They right. look like this. They're really great, by the yeah. way. And I was trying to look, but I didn't see it in my notes very quickly. Is that the name of the makeup artist? Because oh. one of the oh, it's John Chambers. There, I found okay. it. So is that because that was the big question of the movie? Is because yeah. it wasn't just making up your main characters. You know, if you imagine that this level of makeup takes three to six hours yeah. to do, they have scenes with 150, 200 apes in the background. Mm-hmm. So that's a huge. I think the makeup budget was like 1.5 million dollars mm-hmm. just for makeup. Yeah, when well, I did a little bit of research and they talk, I don't know if you're going to touch on this too, but like by the they had to uh, have just liquid food. The, right. All the extras, oh, yeah. all the people in the makeup. Uh, Kim Hunter said that she took a value or whatever she took to survive being in that makeup so that she wouldn't be hungry. Like she tried not to eat solid food when she was in the makeup and she would take a, some sort of pill like Benadryl or Valium or something so she could get through the day of wearing that makeup for that long. It was that difficult to wear that makeup and have it oh, portrayed wow. as that. a human. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. And she's talked about that uh, or I read an interview about her about that and it's, it, that's the level. And in fact, it, Heston never saw her out of it so that when she walked up to at the premiere and it's like hey Chuck he had no idea who she was oh I didn't hear that yeah, that's she hilarious had to, she had to introduce that's herself awesome. to him all over again yeah um, and, and if you watch the makeup one of the really interesting things is how expressive it is mm-hmm. that you can actually see and of course the actors you know you get put in makeup like this one of the first things you have to do as an actor is go practice yeah you have to go in front of a mirror because you have an instinct for I look sad I look happy and you don't have to tell your face to do things right but when you're in the monkey makeup you do and you have to go okay this is what happens when I raise I'm, I'm making facial expressions yeah, yeah. at John right now so all of you can see it these are great you play the home game these are amazing but uh, <laughs> when I raise my eyebrows like this or when I move and pucker my lips like this that that's the effect it's going to have externally mm-hmm. so that they could create a performance and if you watch it their performances are really good amazing and Roddy McDowell said in an interview that he's the one that told a lot of them what to do in the makeup like Find ways to move your mouth. Find ways to do little things so it looks like you're some sort of ape and some sort right. of some sort of simian creature, and so you can and stand out and be able to. And it works. It really works. It's so believable. Even for for now in 2016, it's believable to see that 1968 makeup. It totally works for me. Absolutely, yeah. I agree. I want to go back just just to the sure. beginning again. So we start in a spaceship. Yes, and we're going to go off. And and these are guys that are going off to never see Earth again. Yes. Because of Einstein relativistic travel that we're going to move forward in time so fast that, that by the time he even, he's recording his like sort of farewell before he goes into suspended animation, it's over. Yeah. Earth is gone. Yeah. Or, or, or the Earth, they know, they crash land. And that's just uh, – and, and they're walking out with nothing on this barren world. And then we get a 15, 20-minute philosophical discussion which again, you wonder why I like this movie so much. This is really my thing. But a 20-minute discussion yeah. on the meaning of civilization, on life, on the validity of man, yes. on on what are you here for? And Heston is so, he's almost nihilistic yeah. in his approach to, like, nothing has any meaning. Obviously, we're just, now we're just surviving. And he kind of likes it. Yeah. He likes letting go of all of that stuff in the past. 
And then, and we talked about uh, entrances before. We talked about uh, entrances and exits with um, Amadeus. We talked about mm. Superman. Is again, we have a long time before we get to the apes. And when we finally do, they've lost their clothes. They're yeah. naked. Yeah. And then you have that great, great zoom in on the first ape that you see, and it is a shocking moment yeah. in the film. Because yeah. it comes into frame on the horse, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's just, just there it is. That's what, that's what we're dealing with. And the, a lot of the direction in this film is really interesting in how they evoke this, the tension and the fear and the feeling of being out of place constantly by the character of, by Heston's character. You see that from the close-ups, from the angles, the tight angles, the out of nowhere moves, the people coming into frame and staying longer than they should or long enough for you to get the real effect of what's happening. Right. It's just interesting. And the, the, the first ape showing up like that, it gives you that feeling. Well, and you see what's happened to uh, Heston and his crew is that when you start yeah. out, when we meet them, they are technologically advanced. Yes. They are, in fact, more advanced than us. They're, they're astronauts. They're the most advanced version of humans. Mm -hmm. Then they crash land, and they lose their spaceship. So now they're astronauts. They're still really smart, but they, and they have a few tools and a few backpacks and a little bit of water and stuff like that, but yeah. they're kind of in the wilderness. Then they take a swim, and they're naked. And by the way, there's a very funny naked shot. It's <laughs> almost like an Austin Powers level, good thing that leaf is right there kind of shot. Um, and but it is and, and Heston, you get to see Heston's butt, which yeah. is you know sort of an interesting thing. A number of times in the and, movie, yeah, yeah. Uh, surprisingly, and yeah. then and then it's perfectly fine uh, ass for Ben Hur. I suppose so. Yes. Um, so and, I don't but, want to judge it, but uh, <laughs> I do. But then you essentially literally strip them down to primitive man. Yeah. And you go and, and when those uh, they're really like the beaters that one would have for. A hunt, mm -hmm. you know, if you have the the people and you, you know, back in old England or whatever, you would have a bunch of your servants go out and beat the ground oh, yeah. to have the birds fly up so you could stand there and shoot them, right. and that's essentially what happens. And you go and you have this moment of, oh, they're helpless. Right. That all of their technological advancement, all of their intelligence, all of their scholarly learning, there's a they have nothing. They are just like those primitive people they ran yeah. about. So we literally take them back to the primitive moment mm -hmm. and then put him in a cage well i think it works too because what you were saying the the happy accident which in all great movies have some form of happy accident and i think this is the same thing the budget was too it, to make it technologically advanced was going to be too much by making it primitive you're able to connect to it in a primal way as the beginning of man and then you still see them you walk the line of seeing them as uh, animals but also as uh, a dominant species and i love that i absolutely love that so the fact that it's not like a hundred percent um what you call technologically advanced or whatever world it makes it helps me connect both with the apes and with man because everyone's in the same boat. There's just a status order, and there's right. even a status order within the apes. You know, the baboons to the orangutans to the apes. Absolutely, it's so great to see that, just like it would be in our society. The social order of you know of elitists. You know? I t totally. I want to hold that because yeah, I want to sure. say one more thing, but I, we definitely have to get back to that because yeah. it's a big issue within the film. But what's interesting I think it's really smart whether it was intentional or not that it's essentially set seems to be kind of like the enlightenment period for mm. for us which is that it's this moment you know they have some rifles and guns right. they have some machines there's clearly a real fascination with science mm -hmm. but the science is still very much under the thumb or connected to religion which is if you look yeah. at the time between Galileo and Newton and Leipzig and Kepler and all those guys that's really when that is mm -hmm. 
And so, uh, you know, obsessively exploring science, but then also this connection to religion. And I think that's a, and that is n- not uncoincidentally. Yeah. That was a, several negatives in there. I'm not sure how I said that. <laughs> I think we came out in a positive one there. Okay, yeah. good. Um, but that is, uh, you know, exactly the declaration of, uh, that enlightenment leads mm-hmm. to the founding of the United States. Yeah. And so to me, that's a really uh, ripe, full era to explore yeah. when we go to these apes. We, as you say... There is a clear class structure, a clear race structure, yeah. and there's the great Heston line where they say all apes are clear, created equal, and he says, seems like some apes are, maybe some apes are more equal than others. I mean, that is, that is 1968 <laughs> or, or 2016 America yeah, right there. Right. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets and so much more download the app in virginia today and get 150 dollars in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at betmgm betmgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly see betmgm.com for terms 21 plus only virginia only new customer offer subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days please gamble responsibly gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER promotional offer not available in washington dc it's this is what's so fascinating about the film i found as i was going as i was watching it again is these themes and that's what's so great about movies like the themes and it's also the unfortunate state of mankind in our society the themes don't go out of style. The themes don't go like they're not not still in our society. Still, it's not something we struggle with. So not something we we try to figure out, you know, and try to highlight, you know. And if you put this with Omega Man, and you he went on this, Heston went on this, Soylent Green, yeah. he went on this nice little run where he was questioning authority, questioning the government, questioning establishment, politics, and one and like seeing where he fit, 
you know so it's so fascinating to watch that and then you watch Planet of the Apes and see these little comments that he's made throughout the movie that are of course written but still they're comments that are just so powerfully delivered in ways that are at times subtle and then at other times overt you know like keep like the paws off me you damn dirty ape take your sticking paws off me you damn dirty ape That is such a powerful moment of delineation. I am above you. Absolutely. How dare you touch me? In my mind, I am the dominant species. But that's man. Even trapped in a net, man will try to assert what they believe is their general order in the kingdom of the animals. Well, and and you might go, this is a white man. Yes. You know, because because here's this guy, and that's why he's such a great character. He's this guy who rejects rejects man yeah because he is superior to, he feels superior to, to man to man itself yes yeah. and then and he feels superior to and then he's placed in this position as even lower than a slave yeah. essentially and yet his essential arrogance remains yes. and since in a lot of ways you cannot talk about this movie without talking about race yeah you know and and, and you look at it, and this is sort of what i was saying before is you go okay how can i make an audience experience the emotions of being the other yeah you know, because this is what great art is for. Great, I mean, it's maybe it's not what all great art is for, but, <laughs> but you know, art's for entertainment and other things. Sure. But if we can transform people, then that gives it, that's an amazing power to be able to do that. And you ask the question, okay, how can I make, you know, a white guy from Minnesota feel like what it's to be a mm-hmm. black guy in Memphis? Yeah. And the answer is mostly you can't. Yeah. It's pretty hard. Every once in a while we can make a movie that does that. But I can make the white guy from Minnesota feel like Charlton Heston yeah. in Planet of the Apes and put him in a cage and have people not believe that he's not human right. and have people believe that he is less than and have people make assumptions about his intelligence based on his appearance yeah. and have people like oh, one of the things of them talking about him being stinky. And yeah. it's like, well, everyone is stinky if they don't bathe. Like, and yet we, and this is a thing you see throughout, you know, American history mm-hmm. and world history of denigrating someone who is of a different race or a different culture yeah. because they don't appear like you. Yeah. Well, it's like the reason they don't appear like you is because they're from a different culture. Exactly. You know, or maybe they're really poor and they can't get a fucking bath. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like a homeless guy doesn't smell because he there's something different inside of him. Yeah. He smells because he hasn't had a shower in a while. Yeah. You would smell too, you know. <laughs> I want to jump in real quick, Steve, and talk about Dr. Zayas because... Unless I can't you, unless hear it want... without hearing the Simpsons Planet yeah, of the Apes, course, the musical. The whole time. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. <laughs> Help, the human's about to escape. Get your paws off me, you dirty ape. Oh, help me, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Oh, Dr. Zayas. With Zayas, it's so... I found him to be the most interesting character in the film. Absolutely. This time I, around watching it, because... I think he and Heston both for me, but, but yes. yeah, he is, he is amazing. Because he, when you get the reveal that he knew the yep. whole time... All my life I've awaited your coming and dreaded it. Like death itself. Why? Because you're a man. And you're right. I have always known about man. From the evidence, I believe his wisdom must walk hand in hand with his idiocy. His emotions must rule his brain. He must be a warlike creature who gives battle to everything around him, even himself. The danger of man, the foibles of man. 
it makes you wonder how old he is, how, what his lineage is to have this information passed down generation to generation to understand that man was. So when, like when Heston is throwing him the doll and he sees the doll saying that, like that only, I don't know if that's a real powerful moment for Zaius because Zaius always knew this kind of suspicion that man was flawed and man was the reason that apes had come into power in the way that they had and why he called it the, why he, they made it the forbidden zone because they didn't want apes to go down there and get information that man was here first because they were teaching that apes were here. I think that was so great to hear him talk. Like they're talking, oh, he came, Proteus, and he came, Proteus came and gave the ape life. And you're just like, yeah, this is exactly the same kind of stuff we tell ourselves. And it was so brilliant to have that, uh, to have our own society and religion and structure, societal structure, reflected back at us in that movie through the ape structure. It, it's I took, so great. Yeah, it's so great. And the, so, first of all, the doll moment is fantastic. Yeah. And I don't know which writer, because we got three writers involved. <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming it can't be Pierre Bull because they had invented that kind of story element that it had been Earth. Right. That's a Rod Serling thing. Right. Whoever came, whoever had that moment of the doll and that the doll would speak, and why would an ape have a human doll that speaks? They gave themselves a big pat on the back that day. <laughs> That's that moment when you're writing where you're like, oh, I'm good. You know, <laughs> Nailed that, it. Yeah, that, that, it doesn't happen that often. Yeah. So first of all, the moment's great. And then Zaius, who sort of played this very strange game all along, yeah. says, yeah, I knew that. Mm-hmm. And it, it gives, uh, it exposes the hypocrisy of the entire system. Right. Uh, we don't know whatever. I think he's an orangutan and that they're the most, yeah. they're the top uh, sort of caste or race within the society. Yeah. We don't know if all of them know. And consequently, the lighter-skinned race, which is very not, interesting Not well. unsurprisingly. And that the darkest-skinned, which is the gorillas, mm-hmm. who are the military and the workers there, the lowest. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the movie is not subtle. It's levels within levels yeah. within levels, which is so but, great. But the fact that he knows means that everything he has been saying throughout the movie and the, the society he is maintaining, yeah. he is not maintaining because of truth, yeah. which he says that he is. Yeah. He says, oh, I believe in studying and learning, and of course I care about your research. No, he doesn't. Mm. He cares about his research only to the degree which it uh, serves the establishment. Yes. And in a way it reminds me, maybe this is a highfalutin uh, thing to compare it to, but the Grand Inquisitor and in Brothers Karamazov, oh, which, okay. which the story of the Grand Inquisitor is this story that in the Inquisition, uh, Jesus comes back to life and Jesus comes to see the Grand Inquisitor and say, what are you doing in my name? Stop doing this. And the, I'm, I'm, I'm summarizing one of the most beautiful pieces of moral literature and history in like 30 seconds. Okay. But the Grand Inquisitor's response is essentially, I'm going to have to kill you again because yeah. we've built this whole thing based on you and you being here is fucking it up. Listen, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying this right now and I don't want to get too deep into a political hole. I'm sure for those of us who, who, for those people who believe in God, believe in Jesus Christ, is supposed to be coming back. If he came back right now and saw what was being done in his name, I'm sure he had a, he'd have a few words about it, and somebody would suggest killing him again because well, yeah. of how it would destroy uh, their revenue streams, their lives, their just everything they've created to manipulate and exploit that theology for their own benefit. And well, so, yeah, that's that's if a we great... pick our two, I think. Most people would not argue with this. Most Jesus-like figures of the 20th century, we've got Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. and Gandhi, yeah. they get killed. They do. You know? Right. That's um, a good point. Yeah. I mean, we don't really like having people messing with our status quo, yeah. even when our status quo sucks. Yeah. You know? And, and certainly we see that with things that are going on today yeah. and definitely this movie. And that's why Dr. Zayas is a great character, yep. is that he's this guy who he knows yeah. and he is defending the status quo. 
He is he is the smartest person in the movie, mm -hmm. the smartest character in the movie yeah. by far. Mm -hmm. He's way ahead of everybody else, and he is just trying to defend the status quo. Well, and I think that's what's what I love about him because yeah, you're right. He's smarter than everybody else in the movie. He seems to understand why he seems to be one step ahead. Like he finds them at the cave. You know, he's the one that shows up yeah. with the with the gang of gorillas to find them at the cave and whatever. He always seems to know the situation, and he brings Heston in uh, right after he's had the trial and be like, "Well, you, I can do some, I can help you out if I blah blah blah." Even though initially he's the first one that wants to mess with his head and and make him uh, make him like brain dead essentially, or a, or a, or a, a mummy essentially, like he did to his partner, uh, his the other astronaut, like he did by cutting him open and essentially making him a mute and he wants to do all these things but once he can't then he adjusts he's constantly adjusting just like just like what i think the film is trying to say about the government the government is constantly adjusting to try to fit the status quo of what they think is the best way to stay in power yep. and even at the end when he, he sees that situation he is still trying to to defend what he's done and that's what's so uh so cool about dr zayas as a character because it really is such a fantastic way to see our authority figures reflected back at us because we have a natural suspicion about our authority figures that they know better they're just not telling us absolutely yeah and 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 you'll notice that heston always talks to dr zayas if dr zayas in the room he doesn't talk to cornelius no, he does not he knows very quickly that this is the dude to talk to yeah that cornelius and and zira as intelligent as they are yeah. and they are intelligent they don't know what the fuck's going on. Right. Zayas knows what's... And, and it's like, if we can give him the benefit of the doubt that he believes what he is doing is for some greater good. Right. But his methods are sociopathic. Yeah. You know, he doesn't actually... He would happily kill Cornelius and Zira if that meant that he could get what he wanted. Oh, and, yeah. And there's no question. And he, and he likes them. Yeah. I think he likes them, of but course. he would still kill them because yes. that's what has to be done. Right. Well, there's that moment with Heston's character uh, where he, like, Cornelius tries to get him to stop doing something and Heston just cocks the gun and goes... I'm, I'm in. Yeah, I'm I in got charge. it. Yeah, I'm in charge now. Yeah. And there it is. There's here we go. Here, like Zira helped him escape. Cornelius was part of providing him a home, helping him get to where they're going. And then all of a sudden, has I'm in charge now. And that's the thing that doesn't end. And that's the arrogance of man, which is why his comeuppance is still so perfect at the end. Because even though he is who he is, even though he's trapped, even though he's kind of lost everything and everybody he came with, he still. Uh, thinks he's king of the walk and he has to be taken down you know he is it's funny because he's an extremely pragmatic character mm -hmm. he's like this is what i have to do to get to where i have to get to yep. and therefore that's what i do mm -hmm. and i don't care that you helped me out or he cares but he and, and, and honestly i think he makes the right choice to be in charge yeah if he didn't do that they would he, he would have gotten killed and right. brought back he had to do that yeah um but and it's interesting too that he starts the movie going I don't give a shit about man or yeah. earth. And we end the movie with him on the ground screaming and weeping at the death of earth mm -hmm. that he claimed to not care about. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a complicated movie. Let's talk a little bit about the trial sequence. Yes, please. So I like trials. Yes, um, you do. I, I do. You don't like to be in them or the yeah. subject of them, but you like. You but like... I like trial movies yes. because I like people to make. I like when people get to make speeches. Yes. I like the discussion of ideas, and this is we get. First of all, it's a religious trial yeah. where, where where religious doctrine becomes an important thing within the trial, mm -hmm. and it's a trial certainly about race and the ideas of human rights. Yeah, and it also is a trial where we watch someone be humiliated. And Heston is not a guy you think of as being easily humiliated. 
and him getting his clothes stripped off and standing naked, that might be the most vulnerable Heston actor, with maybe Ben-Hur being the other place, yeah, yeah, yeah. where I see Heston being a truly vulnerable person. Tell the court, Bright Eyes, what is the second article of faith? I know nothing of your culture. I, I admit that. Of course he doesn't know our culture because he cannot think. Why are all apes created equal? Some apes, it seems, are more equal than others. Ridiculous. Yeah. It's a great sequence. It really is. And you start to feel sympathy for him in those in that sequence, oh, yeah. in that situation, uh, because of how he's being treated and how it reflects back in a very subversive way of how they felt some of the criminals and some of the anti-establishment people were getting treated in their protests like they're being treated in a certain way you know you have these trials that in essence monkey trials is what the term we've used which is basically what they did it was a monkey trial basically because they had already made up their minds they tried to railroad the prosecutor or the defense to only say certain things at the risk of losing their status in the ape society you know it was not an equal thing where they were seen as just doing their job it was if you do this job defending this creature that can possibly talk or whatever uh, and came from the stars then you might lose your job as a doctor in our society and that's so interesting everything is it's very um what would you call it i don't know what the word is but it's very dictatorial i guess is maybe the word in that like everything is everything is you have to it's almost cultish i guess yeah. it's almost draconian. cultish that's what it, yeah draconian right it's like everything everything you do is not out of a vacuum everything is like connected to everything else and if you do one thing then these are the consequences even though you might be doing it for the right reason and it's just interesting well when you when you begin and you know my uh, religious philosophy comes out a little bit here yeah. but when religion exists at the core of a legal system yeah. or when the idea that the people in charge know absolute right and wrong exists within a, a, a legal system, you get into real trouble yeah. because they know that humans cannot speak. They know that humans are inferior. They know yeah. that they are not sentient life forms and therefore they cannot accept it even when it's in front of them. Yeah. You know, and you look throughout American history and this has been used in legal arguments uh, not today, but in some ways, what we see going on reflects this mm-hmm. is that uh, African American people of African descent are inferior. Yeah. You know, and for years that was part of the legal code in the United States. Yeah. And so, because that was part of the legal code, and we feel, I believe, still feel echoes of that today, yeah. that those things come out. Yeah. And again, it's this idea of creating the way to bring the audience into the role of the other and let them experience a thing yeah. changes the way they look at their own lives. Mm-hmm. And I think that trial sequence does. Absolutely. Yeah. And I love this James Whitmore as the judge. Yeah. Who you would, I, that voice, I immediately knew that voice. And right. I guess I'd never researched who the judge was. And then when I looked it up on IMDb, there it is, James Whitmore. And I was like, I knew I knew that voice. Brooks from Shawshank Redemption. Right. So of course. Great. From, yeah. Of course, from numerous other things. By the way, one thing I hate in the trial sequence oh, yeah. is. I really don't like that they did the hear no evil, see no evil, see no evil. I think that takes me out of the movie. It was apparently an impromptu thing yeah, I heard that, that yeah. stayed in the movie. Yeah. Although uh, it was kind of fun to see that. I mean, it's some, funny. In no, some it's weird way, definitely it was kind funny. of fun. Yeah. This is me maybe being too serious, but yeah. I was like, uh, you know, like to me, it's a cheap gag. Yeah. And I didn't, because it kind of makes me, <laughs> it takes me out a little bit. A little bit. Um, I want to talk Fair. about something we haven't talked about yet, which is Jerry Goldsmith's score. Oh, man. 
So good. Please do. Yeah, it is so groundbreaking. It is so dissonant and strange. He pulls in so many different kinds of instruments. He's making sound. I mean, I think he's really predicting in a way where uh, film composing, film scoring, and music in general goes mm -hmm. in the 21st century, yeah. you know, 30 years later. Because once you get to sampling, then people are bringing in all sorts of sounds right. and making music out of them. Right. But at the time, he had to bring everything into that studio. And if he's scraping a garbage can on a violin or something, which is some of the things that he did, yeah. then that's how he did it. You know, yeah. and, and the sounds, it's an extremely dissonant and noticeable and painful and stressful yeah. soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. The music, the, the notes, the beats, the rhythms, it all hits you at the right time to put you right into that movie and have you feeling the constant sense of dread or constant sense of not knowing what's going Just constantly feeling like you're upside down. Like the whole right. film, the first time you see it, you feel like you're upside down the whole yeah. time. And the music really accentuates that, you know? Well, and there's a, it, there is definitely a otherworldly quality. Yes. You are not in a normal place. Yeah. Um, it's also the way that it's filmed. It's uh, Schachter. Now I just drew a blank on it. Franklin, right? Frank Schachter, yeah. yeah. Who, uh, the other big movie he directed is Patton. Yeah. Um, which is a fantastic movie. It's, too, it's interesting to me that he pretty much directs his two best movies in a very short space of time. And <laughs> he does some other movies, just, I think Sandpiper and some other movies that sure. are, are good movies, but nothing at this level. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I wanted to say about him, so when I went to film school, which is the mid-90s, mm -hmm. we were told that people who use the zoom lens are losers. <laughs> that, that to zoom in, that classy filmmakers dolly in, you can handheld in, right. you do a steady cam, use a glider, use a crane, <laughs> but don't use that zoom. And there's this era from maybe 1967 yeah. until 1973. You see it a lot in like Robert Altman. Yeah. Uh, uh, Mike Nichols used it, you know, where people are just zooming in yeah. and using that zoom. I love the zoom. Yeah. I do. And you see it more today. Like okay. in the mid 90s, it was definitely like, that's not cool. Yeah. And to me, it just gives you this totally different sense from doing an actual camera move. Uh -huh. um, and the way he uses the camera, the disorienting nature of the crash, yeah. the way that camera is moving around, it is really interesting. Yeah. Even from below, those classic shots when they're running over you from below when he's being chased oh, through yeah. the town square and all that. There's in the, fo in the foley as well. You right. know, you get caught up in that. And it really just uh, gets you into the mood, just the way that it's being shot and the certain close-ups, how they use it. It gets you to understand like what's happening within the psyche of whatever character you're looking at in close-up. Yeah, it's disorienting and beautiful yeah. and chaotic yeah. and kinetic. It's a really exciting way that they're using the camera. And the cameraman, yeah. I think he's the guy who shot things like Cleopatra. Wow. Yeah, like also, this is like a big old school. And yeah. he was in his 80s, I think. I'm not looking at my notes right now, but I think that, that okay. he, was a, he was an older dude mm -hmm. who was a really, really good guy who got called upon to do all of this. Yeah. Oh, and what I do know is that when they did the final shot and they wanted the shot through the crown of the Statue of Liberty mm -hmm. down to them on the beach, they had the camera up on a crane on a cliff. It's shot in Malibu, I oh, think. Oh, wow. Um, and it was really high up. And the uh, cameraman, the DP, goes, nope. <laughs> I'm not getting up there. I'm 80 years old. I'm not doing that. And the, then the camera operator went, nope. And so Schachter and one of his assistants, they climbed up and shot that. Wow. Because it was so precarious and yeah. up so high that no one else wanted to do it. Can we talk about this relationship he has? Like, it's, it's when you talk about the women in the movie, and it's really interesting because Zira is obviously a very, uh, she's an intelligent scientist, but she's also a very demure in that way. She's not like, mm -hmm. she isn't forcefully trying to protest. She protests in a way that's respectful, 
right? She's she's, she's stronger than Cornelius. Yes, in that way, yes, but o- only in the way that she expresses her feelings. But she doesn't try to purposely attack or challenge Zeus. Right. She tries to say, "Well, look at this, or what about this?" And it's more of an inclusive, interactive way of portraying her pro- of, of conveying her protest, right? But with the the woman dies at the beginning. The woman astronaut dies at the mm-hmm. beginning, and then Nova can't speak. Yeah. Talk to me about what you felt about seeing this now in retrospect, like just the way and the way he talks about free has talked about free love and all this kind of like, you know, I'm trying to find something real. And there's all these people sleeping around like all this. All this, this, this just seems like a really interesting thing that's happening here with his character. Did any of that strike you as watching it now? When it you're watching didn't. It, it really no. I got to say it really didn't. And usually. <laughs> okay. So clearly my it's funny, like my sexism or my or just having my feeling. You yeah. know, sometimes you establish your feelings about a movie because you yeah. Watched it so many times, yeah. but now that you're saying it, no, it makes it makes perfect sense. I mean, certainly Heston is as as who is a very masculine yes. actor anyway. Yes, he's at the top of his masculineness. Yes, doing this movie, yeah, um, absolutely agree. Yeah, and so, but I didn't. And it's funny, like the Zero Cornelius relationship. Yeah, is he, it seems like Cornelius cares about the truth in his science. Yes, but really, he just wants to get along. He just wants to live. Yeah. Yeah. And if he, if someone will let him live and he can do his fun scientific projects and have Zira, he'll be very happy. Yeah, if he didn't have Zira, he wouldn't say a word. No, God, no. Right. And she cares about the truth. She mm-hmm. doesn't care necessarily about protesting anything. Right. She just like, well, this is the, this is the truth. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then with Nova, yeah. I mean, she is definitely... By the way, uh, the producer on this is Richard Zanuck, and, uh, who be- took over Fox from his father, Daryl Zanuck. And became the producer of Jaws, yeah. and this is his girlfriend. Well, yeah, while he's still married. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it's interesting how she gets cast, and she clearly—you're absolutely right. She's a literally a beautiful woman who yeah. can't speak, and naturally, of course, she will go with the, this man. Yeah. Well, speaking of, you talked about the being in the cage. What did you think of that moment? This is so interesting to me that struck out with when she starts to erase his words that he has carved out in the dirt. Why can they speak? They just choose not to. I some I think it's something like because they never address it again, man. They ne- she she, and, and then Zayas obviously comes up after her and and kind of uh, messes up whatever else he was writing as well, kind of erases it. But she tried to erase the words he'd written. Why? I it certainly shows intelligence. Yes, that's what I. To me, she, it's a moment of going. Please don't do this. You they will fuck you up. Right. You you understand that, she, and maybe that's it. Because if you show intelligence, they immediately lobotomize right. you. Right. Right. Yeah. That's probably what that was, but it's so it was. It's never addressed again. It's just kind of like shown to you, and then you can do with it what you wish. I, this is a, it's a really good point, though. I think it's really because what it shows is the whole. It's not just that the conception of Taylor is wrong, yeah. which obviously it's wrong, but the ape's conception of all humans is wrong. Yes, is that humans are more intelligent, and it, so let me ask you this: yeah. another question. Does this make you feel different watching this movie? How do you feel about animals and zoos and pets and? Does it make you feel different <laughs> about the treatment of animals? Uh, no, I don't. You know, I have to admit that I don't necessarily have that gene or that bone in my body. In that, I certainly don't want to. I don't watch any movies where they show me how they mistreat the animals. I can't handle it. Right. They're defenseless animals. I can't handle watching anything defenseless being killed or destroyed. I just can't handle it. But then again, I'm a meat eater. I love meat. And you're never going to talk me out of it. Never. And I believe I, I do. would never try to. Well, I just I know there are some people who think you can change. Everybody can. No, no. I think there are. Some, and I, I subscribe to this theory that there are some blood types that I've read before. There are some blood types that just have just need meat. 
And I know me, I need meat, I need protein, I need eggs, I need meat to function. It does not work if I don't eat meat. I become the worst person in the world. And I need the protein to stay alive, to fund, to funnel my, to fund my body's uh, uh, energy. And so I, I think... For me, zoos, what have you. I mean, I'm slowly coming to the place where we don't need... I don't go to them. So I don't have an inclination to want to uh, uh, have... If they all went away tomorrow, I would not care. Honestly, I would not care because it never has been effect, affecting... It never has been a thing I needed to know about or not know about in my life. I, I, have, I have complicated feelings. And the, okay. and the movie does... I'm, I'm a meat eater, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love a burger. They're sure, delicious. Of course. Um, but the movie does make me think those things. Oh, wow. Because the, I, it goes to the sort of scale of uh, intelligence and sensitivity to pain right. and emotion. And having had lots of dogs in my life mm-hmm. and interacting with a fair amount of animals, I know that animals have emotions. Yeah. I've seen them. I know that animals feel pain and have some degree of intelligence. Yeah. And, and we, as a society make a determination about, well, this is cool and this is not cool. Right. At this point, so for instance, if you, if humans saw a monkey in a very, very tiny cage where they couldn't turn around, they would go, well, that's terrible. You can't do that. Yeah. But a chicken in the same cage or a pig would go, eh, dinner. You know? And, that's a good point. And, and we're not good at kind of determining, well, why are we saying this is okay and this is not okay? Yeah. If you go and say, someone killed a shark. You know I've worked on shark films. Yes. 100 million sharks killed a year, mostly bycatch, which means they were killed and not used. It was accidental. Right. Or they're killed for fins and tails, um, which is used for shark fin soup and stuff. Right. And they throw the rest of the body back in the water, still alive, where it drowns. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah. And, but that's what we do. If you kill a dolphin, what the oh. fuck are you doing? Yeah. And how dare you? You kill a dog. Yeah. Same you thing. Kill a dog. I mean, Michael Vick will never get out of that. Kill a rat. We, we don't kill, really care. We don't really care. And, and so we, we make these decisions, but we don't have a standard by which we make these decisions. No. I mean, I don't want to make this a, a podcast about animal rights. No, no, no. But it does certainly, Planet of the Apes. Yeah. You, if, if, if they're saying, if, if, if apes are to humans as humans are to apes, in the two different societies, yeah. then they're saying you have to look at how you're treating animals. I mean, right. That's a thing that the movie is forcing you to consider. Well, we haven't even touched on this whole idea of the, of the idea of evolution. That's why Planet of the Apes works so well, because they are so close to us as creatures, as in, in the animal kingdom. There's so much about them that's very similar to us. And, of course, there are many scientists who subscribe to the theory that we evolved from apes. I Most, pers- basically I, all yeah, of them. basically all. <laughs> Sorry, that's fair. Uh, and I've accepted that. I don't, but I don't. I don't take it as an offense. There are some people who take it as an offense. I'm here now. I'm not right. way back then. You know what I'm saying? I'm here now, so I'm happy being who I am here. And it's so interesting to see that when they bring up those ideas, they're just reversing. They're just removing man and inserting the word ape in its place to yep. to make you see that this is the way we kind of function and operate within our lives, how we've put that together as a society. Well, because our behavior looks really stupid yeah. when we see someone else do it. That's what I'm saying. You know, it's like you can't see your own, you know, it's just in life. You can't yeah. see your own bullshit. That's true. And then you see some other dude do the thing you just did. And you're like, well, why would anyone do that? Oh, shit, I do that. Yeah. You know, and you, and you bring up evolutionists and you brought up monkey trials before. Yeah. Well, that's where the term monkey trial comes from is the Scopes monkey trial, right, Scopes which is monkey. the trial about uh, evolution. evolution. Exactly. Is that is and, and again, it goes to this arrogance of man, the arrogance of the apes in the film i have conceived my reality and who i am in this way and therefore anything which contradicts that perception of who i am yeah. must be rejected yeah i cannot face it it must be thrown away yeah i've heard and i've heard uh, uh some or read some uh, articles where they've talked about how this is an allegory to race that the gorillas or the apes rather represent 
black America at the time and and Heston represents white America. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's more about how we're treating, how we treat people in our society overall and uh, what we're saying in that mo- in those moments when we're treating the people in a certain way. Do you feel differently? Do you think it's definitely about race? Well, unquestionably... Or more about animal rights? No, you... unquestionably it's about race. Okay. Um, I don't think that it's one-to-one. I don't think... There we go. That's This what I'm person to get represents at. that. That's what that I'm trying to get at. I yeah. think that's why I say it's, it's about feeling like the other. Yes. And it's about looking at ourselves through the eyes of the other mm-hmm. and seeing... You know, just bringing the mirror up to ourselves and exposing all of the flaws and all of the lack of logic and the lack of compassion and the lack of caring and the double standards and the stubbornness. That's what I think it's about. Like, I think, you know, I always bothered if someone tries to make a, oh, well, that guy is that. Yeah. Well, that's not I I think then you then then you're essentially imposing your own rigid world viewpoint on the thing rather than looking at yourself. Yeah. That's Agreed. what you should be doing. That's what good science fiction can make you do is yeah. go, oh, let me think about myself now. Yeah. How, how, what can I do to be a better person? Yeah. You know? Once again, that's what I love about the ending. It is that. It is oh, yeah. about letting, because it just ends and you just hear the sound of the waves. Oh, my God. I'm back. I'm home. All the time. Finally, really did it. You maniacs! You blew it up! Ah, damn you! God damn you all to hell! And it's perfect to use the Statue of Liberty because of the symbol of freedom. The symbol of freedom. The symbol of acceptance. The symbol of send me your poor, your humbled masses. You know, all that kind of jazz. And to see it decayed, rotting, uh, half, uh, uh, I don't know if it's under the sand or half broken, sitting there. Which is so funny that it's on the beach. Like how it got from New York all the way out to the beach is interesting to me. It's more how the beach got to it in the middle of the water. Ah, uh, yes, good, yes. And so you're sitting there looking at what does this mean? And it's, it's, it's that. It's the death of, of the idea of the theology of America and he's sitting there and uh, just slamming his hands into the water and then all you hear is just because there's it's the quietness of it man it's the yeah. stillness to sit and think all of your gone. thoughts yeah well so and I think it, it, it I mean this is a movie if anything about the insignificant of uh, insignificance of man yeah is that we think of ourselves as the most important things on the planet right. we've only been on the planet for a very very short space of time yeah. our civilizations are like a blink of an eye yeah. in the in the history of our planet and if we destroyed ourselves with nuclear war which is sort of what I think the movie is implying yeah but or if we destroyed ourselves with race war or terrorists or biochemical yeah. war or disease or all the other things we're going to do to fuck ourselves up, <laughs> the earth will not care. Yeah. It will just keep going. And as much as you think that these things that you've built, these monuments to your own pride are permanent, yeah. guess what? Time is more powerful than the Empire State Building or the Golden Gate Bridge mm-hmm. or the pyramids or, or the Statue of Liberty or anything else. Yeah. And, and I think, and this is where it's like, it's not that there's hope at the end of the movie, but it, it, I think if it makes you change, there is. Because yes. the question at the yes. end of the movie is, this. it's saying, this is what's coming for you unless you change. Right. You don't have to have this. Yeah. This is not written in stone. You can actually, you know, it's, it's yeah. Scrooge on Christmas morning. Right. Are these things that I've seen, are they going, what has to happen or what might happen? Well, this is what might happen, right. I think. That's my feeling yeah. at the end of the movie. I feel the same way. Yeah. And I can get up and actually make things a little bit better. Yeah. And you do sometimes. 
Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes I just go out and eat a cheeseburger and just say, fuck it all. Well, you can't carry the weight on your other shoulder. Your, no, the my, shoulder. I have a shoulder thing. It's like a little sore <laughs> thing going on there. I can't do that. Boom. Um, okay. So let's talk a little bit about where this movie went. Okay. We get five sequels. Yes. And a TV show, which I had forgotten. It's like two I seasons. I watched the TV show. Yes. Yeah. I remember that. The sequels... <laughs> I'm going to say, look, if you love this movie, then you should go watch the sequels. Absolutely. And you should feel feelings about them. Yes. And there are things in them that are good. Absolutely. And there are things in them that are terrible. Absolutely true. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, but they're still fun to watch as a completest thing. Yeah. And there are some interesting societal things said. Mm-hmm. And Heston makes a comeback, which is so insane. Very briefly. Very briefly. That fight in the jail cell is so insane out of nowhere. Yeah. 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 They get, we got... Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which is weird and yeah. creepy. And then you get uh, Return to the Planet of the Apes, where Cornelius and Zira apparently escape in a time machine yeah. and go back to modern day Earth, which is funny and charming. And you get Ricardo Montalban. And yes, anytime you, you get Ricardo Montalban, I'm like, I'm yeah. good to go. Yeah. Then the, I think, uh, what's the next one? Battle or? Is it Beyond? Beyond is the second. Beneath? Oh, no, Beneath is the second. Yeah, Beneath is the second. Beyond is the fourth one, fourth. I think. Fourth. Oh, so yeah. Beyond is where, because then that's war and super violence. Yes. Um, which I think, which is cool. I, the war scenes are pretty awesome. It's pretty brutal. It scares yeah. the hell out of me because that's yeah. my that's my one of my greatest fears is Simeon. Over, Simeon is that one of yes, your greatest fears? It's Simeon Apocalypse basically is yes, yes. Those so are it's the, like sharks. Simeon Apocalypse. Sh- sharks aren't even in the conversation. Oh really? Sharks are third, way a distant third because those are in water, and I will willingly if I go into water that can happen to me. But for me, shark. Uh, but for me, apes taking over the world like monkeys taking over that's why the that's why the sequel the remake rather is so well done it right. scares the living hell out of me it's so well done because i think it's possible and ai those are the two things i've said this many uh. times those are the two things that i fear the most to because everything we're doing trying to live our life pay our rent do whatever becomes irrelevant in that moment so um I don't think I have my list of top fears. I might have to work that up for another podcast at some point. Okay. Um, and then, so as you mentioned, we get uh, the Mark Wahlberg, Tim Ugh, Burton movie yeah. sequel or remake, which is terrible. Don't even watch that. Yeah, one. it's terrible. And then pretty good recent remakes. Fascinating. Both of them. Really Very good. different movies. Yes. But in a way, they flip it and explore things in a slightly different way that works, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. And Caesar's not introduced until the fourth film of the, of the uh, Planet right. of the Apes movies. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I Yeah. And I think, and to me, this is like, this is to, where good sci-fi wants to be yeah. for me, is like, let's go take a look at ourselves and let's spin the world around in some interesting way yeah. and allow us to speak some truth yeah. or ask some hard questions. Absolutely. Um, and I think we can, keep, we can keep doing that. And so are, are there going to be more of the Planet of the Apes series? Yeah, I'm sure, sure that both yeah. of them have made money. Yeah. And Caesar's definitely a, a, a fantastic character Absolutely. with Andy Serkis doing the, stop, uh, the motion yeah. capture on him. So yeah. So John, it. final thoughts. Uh, absolutely, can I can absolutely tell you, I, 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 the film still holds up in 2016. I just saw it the other night. It's so much fun to explore, and you get something out of it, which is what's so great about uh, classic films. You get something out of it every time you watch it. Every day. if if you're open to receiving the film and you're just not watching it the past time, you can actually get something new out of it every time. And I think that's what I enjoy the film so much. It says it has so much to say. But in a way that's still at, at times tongue in cheek and at times very much in your face. And I well, love that. And to me, it really struck me this time like, we're back in a time in, in the United States Absolutely. where race is a question mm-hmm. and the relationship between race and government is a question. Mm-hmm. And man, we're still arguing about evolution and authority. And, and we're still arguing about authority yeah. and we're still arguing about the role of science yep. in, in the world. And we're dealing with 
you know, climate change and all these things, and they're mm-hmm. still controversial. So it seems to me like this movie still has something to say. Absolutely. Or at least good questions to ask. Yeah. Um, I'd love to know what you guys all think, everyone listening to the show, yeah. it, particularly those people who haven't seen the movie yet. Yeah. If you watch it, please visit our Facebook page. That's The Cinephiles, Cinephiles with a poster dash in the middle, mm-hmm. uh, and, and leave us your comments. If you have suggestions for things you'd like to take us le- uh, take a look at next please let us know we got some great suggestions and they were all big ones so we're gonna yeah we, we will definitely uh, uh get on that <laughs> and uh if you uh can remove review us on itunes yes uh, those really help we mm-hmm. want to get the podcast out there and any reviews you have particularly the ones that say five stars and we are the greatest podcast you've ever heard in your life <laughs> that is what we would like you to say um and if you need to reach me you can reach me at sr morris at twitter Oh yeah, and and, uh, yeah. You can reach me at the Roca says R O C H A. See, all, you can see me on Twitter and Instagram, and then see all the shows I'm co-hosting or hosting, like this one or the shows I get to be a guest on. I always post those on my uh, social media. There's lots of good things for you to check out. I think you yeah. could, you, if you could subscribe to John Roca, you would get hours and hours <laughs> of entertainment every week if you wanted to. Sure. No, you... uh, here's the deal, guys. Thanks so much for download. We're, we're we've been increasing our downloads every week, and you guys are so amazing to do that. Please keep telling your friends. Please keep telling people and please keep downloading us and listening to us. And of course, like Steve said, we want your comments. We want your points of views. We want your tips. We will answer you as best we can on Twitter and definitely on the Facebook page. And at some point, I'm going to post these up on YouTube and then we'll really be able to have some interaction there with you all as well. That'd be a lot of fun. All right. That's it. Thanks for tuning into the Cinephiles. We'll see you next time. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.